Ever since I can remember, my entire life has been a struggle to receive and to live out of the joy in my relationship with the Lord. From the days of elementary school at the playground to the middle school basketball court to the high school friendships and even in my marriage and family today, I am plagued by a part of my human nature that seeks to constantly battle and condemn me in my identity and suck the joy and the benefit of knowing Jesus right out of my life. I am in my nature a hyper self-critical person. That's some of you, that's all of you to some degree, that's some of you to the degree that I experience it. It's, it's why even in my closest relationship on this earth today, my marriage, um, that whenever I blow it or I lose patience or I say something in my flesh, you know what one of the first thoughts that goes through my mind is? I'm going to lose my family. Everyone's going to abandon me. I'm worthless. Do you know what that feeling is? Have you experienced it? It's called condemnation. And, and condemnation is so powerful because it has a depth of finality to it. And all of the writers in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, talk a lot about this, especially the Apostle Paul, John as well. They talk about this, this condemnation that we experience as believers and the danger that it poses to our joy in following Jesus. John, Jesus' best friend in the world, experienced it and he knew we would be challenged by it as well. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. By this, and what he's talking about here is, is, you know, because of this, Jesus laid down his life for us in the Gospels. Because of that, he's saying, we shall know that we are of the truth and therefore reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And why? Because he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we can have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now, really what I want to hone in on, because Brandon looked at the, 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 the part of abiding a couple weeks ago, I really want to hone in on those first two verses today, verses 19 and 20, that talks about the, 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 the sinful, self-condemning nature of our hearts and how to reassure ourselves and stand confidently in the finished work of Christ. That's really what I want to look at today. So here's what John says. He says, okay, here's how it works sometimes for believers. Our conscience is playing second fiddle to the accuser of the brethren that Revelation tells us is the enemy, the devil himself. And he gives us faulty wisdom, and our conscience takes on to it because it's misinformed. It's not being informed by the scriptures, and our consciences are actually only as helpful of the truth as the truth that informs them. Conscience is a beautiful thing when it's informed by the word of God. It is a terrible thing when it's informed by the work of the enemy. In those moments, 
It's in those moments that John is addressing here. He's addressing, as, as Carte talked about last week, the false prophet within. There's the false prophet without that we gotta test. There's also the false prophet within. And the test of the false prophet within is, does that prophet bring condemnation to the life of the believer? If it does, he must be done away with because it's not from the Lord. So to, to be helpful here, imagine three characters in a courtroom. Uh, character one is the accuser. And this is our own hearts, and they're informed by the enemy. Character two is the defendant. This is us. This is us agreeing with the accuser and ultimately pleading guilty. I did that. I don't have a relationship with God. My sin is so bad it has separated me from God and there is no hope in my life. We are agreeing with the accuser of the brethren in those moments. But then there's the judge. And we often forget about the judge in those moments of self-condemnation. The judge is God declaring us innocent because of his son's work on Calvary. You see, Jesus promises to give us confidence and assurance in the midst of our twisted hearts. So this is the scene. If we're honest, if you're honest with yourself, I bet it's a familiar scene. It may be to one degree or another, but I want to dig in deeper than that because here's what I think we experience. This this self-condemning heart that's influencing, influenced by the devil has one purpose in us, and it's to get you to imagine your life apart from Jesus. If the, if the enemy can get you to imagine yourself in a future that does not have Christ united to you and tethered to you in it, he can take you anywhere in your mind. He can take you anywhere in your thoughts. And you know what this leads to when the enemy takes us there, when we take that bait? Oftentimes it leads us to excessive introspection. Excessive introspection. So my question to you is, is, is this. Are, are you worn out from looking within? Are, are you tired from considering how you should think about yourself and others? How can we come to truly know ourselves without sinking into the abyss of excessive introspection? Well, the Holy Spirit gives us insight into this through what John writes. Because it's, it's not about just discounting self and only thinking about the Lord in a detached, kind of Gnostic way, right? That, that, that the self doesn't matter, it's only the Lord that matters. Because we're fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. So self definitely matters. Or on the other side of the ditch, it's, it's not in only thinking about self and denying the Lord in a humanistic way that says that, that you know, whatever humanity desires is the ultimate end, the chief end of man, basically. Loads of church fathers and loads of church leaders have written about the knowledge of self and the knowledge of God and how they're tethered together for a flourishing life in Jesus Christ. Just listen to a few of them here. Thomas Akempis, a humble self-knowledge is a surer way to God than a search after deep learning. Or how about Augustine, the, the North African theologian of the fourth century? Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Or how about John Calvin? Nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consisted in these two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. Now, here's what the gospel what Jesus has done for us 
Here's how it transforms us. It helps us to understand ourselves by placing ourselves in a larger story where God is the author and it is his kingdom, not our kingdom. And then it pulls us to live outside of ourselves because the enemy desires for you to live in the playground of your own convictions and condemnation inside of your hearts, never letting the light of the gospel into your, into your soul and into your walk and into your sanctification. When the story of our lives is trapped within the confines of self, there is no hope. And, it, and it's why every system of understanding the, that, that the world has without Jesus at the center always leads to condemnation and hopelessness. But the good news is this, is that Jesus Christ has stepped down from heaven, from his Father's right hand to bring heaven to earth. And all our lives, this side of eternity, are about ushering the presence of God into our souls via the Holy Spirit and into our world through fellowship with Jesus as we live on mission with him. That's the whole aim of the Christian life, is to be so satisfied in Jesus that we live to make him known. Not that we get stuck on this feedback loop of excessive introspection that's like living in a house with no windows in it. We've got to come to know ourselves through our redemption in Jesus primarily, not just our sin nature, which is what so many of us are so accustomed to do. That we only know Jesus because we're such, we're such flawed and sinful people that we never know him through the redemption so that we can be about the restorative work that he has for us in his world. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon a couple hundred years ago called Eyes Right. And here's what he said. He said, too many wound themselves by studying themselves. And he goes on in that sermon to say that excessive study and introspection of self without Jesus breaking into our stories is like this. He says, imagine, imagine that you own a store, right? Imagine that you own a retail shop. And it just so happens that you live in the apartment above that retail shop. So the store's on the bottom, you're working there during the day, and then you, you live on top of that retail store. He says, it's like a store owner who closes up shop and then lives in the store and spends all of his time thinking about the things that have not been sold. That, that's what it's like to be on this feedback loop of excessive introspection without Jesus being at the center of your life. He says, he, he goes on to, to kind of talk about this and kind of paints this picture of a person that endlessly replays the tape of the day, thinking through the potential sales that he or she could have made and the conversations that he or she could have had to customers and wondering if they had said something different or nuanced it a certain way, offered a different option. Maybe they would have made the sale. And what ultimately happens is that this type of life nullifies the grace of God and the sovereignty of God and sets self on the throne of life. What we're begging God to do in us today is this, to dethrone ourselves and to preoccupy our minds with Jesus Christ so that we will be able to think rightly about who we are in Jesus Christ. So that we can live out of the joy that our Father has for us. And this is, this is the big idea here. I, I know I've been taking a while to set this up, but the big idea is this, is that only a preoccupation with Jesus can free us from the prison of self-condemnation that we so often find ourselves in. So really just two points here. 
First one's this, why do our hearts condemn us? And secondly, how do our hearts condemn us and how does Jesus set us free from that? So let's dig in. How do our hearts condemn us? Let me remind you of those two verses in 1 John 3, 19 and 20. John writes this, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And why, church? Because he knows everything. So let's just define what condemnation is. Let's just kind of spitball it here. What is condemnation? We know the feeling. We know it kind of legally, but what is it? Condemnation in a legal sense is a sentence that follows judgment. Okay, you hear that? It's a sentence or a punishment that follows a judgment. So as a younger driver, I had a little fast red car and a lead foot, and that meant that I had frequent meetings with the police officers in the town of Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. And a couple times after that, they didn't let me off the hook. There's no amount of nuancing I could have told them. I was guilty, and so they sentenced me to driver school, right? And so I would go and spend four hours on a Tuesday night or whatever and go to driver school because I needed to learn how to drive, okay? So that, that was a sentence that followed a judgment. The judgment was that I broke the law, and I did. He had that little radar gun. I couldn't, couldn't get myself out of it. I saw the numbers, and, and there was a sentence that followed it. Condemnation is the feeling of despair that follows judgment. It's the sentencing part of judgment. It's the verdict. It's what comes after that. It's that overwhelming feeling of guilt that you get when you sin. And our hope is that if we can just feel guilty enough, or at least me, maybe we won't sin. Maybe, maybe our hope is, is if we can just beat ourselves up enough that maybe that'll train our hearts not to sin. Romans chapter 5 says this, the Apostle Paul writes this, he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, in other words, as one sin and judgment against that sin leads to condemnation, eternal condemnation, a life sentence because of our sin, so one act of righteousness leads to justification or acquittal and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience or law-breaking nature, the many will be made sinners. So by the one man's obedience or living according to the law, obeying it perfectly, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, to prove our guilt. They are exhibit A of how bad we are, right? The law, that's why God gave the law, one of the purposes of the law. But here's the thing about Jesus, where sin increased, grace, or the evidence that proves our innocence, abounded all the more than the evidence that stacked against us, okay? That's, that's the beauty of grace, is that the evidence of your perfection and righteousness in Jesus Christ is far greater than exhibit A, the evidence of all of your sinful and total depravity and twisted nature of your heart. And... So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. So you, you kind of get this picture of this arm wrestling match between our sinful nature and the overpowering nature of God's grace in Jesus. And what he's saying here, Paul's writing about, is saying that Jesus wins. He overpowers the sinful nature that lives inside of you that keeps you from God. That's the beauty of the gospel, is that the bank of grace is far bigger than the bank of your sin. 
So why are our hearts condemned? If that's true, why are our hearts condemned? It's because of sin. It's in our nature. No one's righteous, not even one. Each of us have gone our own ways. So that one sin in the garden became the overarching posture of your heart. And the work of grace, the sanctifying work of Jesus, is to train your heart and to transform your heart to live out of a bigger picture of grace than that micro picture of sin. Like that's, that's, that's what God is doing in the gospel in our hearts. So we need to understand that, that this lives in each of us, that kind of that scarlet letter, that stain of sin in our lives. It, it lives in us. And when that stain of sin shows itself in our life, if your conscience and your heart is not informed by the word of God, what God says is true of you, it will almost always lead to condemnation in your own heart. But for the believer, it doesn't have to lead to this. For the Christian, the judgment's in. And it's that you're forgiven and you're righteous because of your union with Jesus. So the enemy's greatest tactic is to convince you that you're no longer united to Christ. His greatest tactic is to convince you of a future where you are not with Jesus, where he is not pleading on your behalf, where he is not at the right hand of the Father telling, you know, interceding for us, reminding the Father of who we are in him. Now, I just want to step aside for a second and say, if you're not a Christian, I mean, to be honest with you, the condemnation, no matter how much you try to merit your life up, it only gets worse. Because the absolute truth of who you are apart from Jesus is that you have sinned irreconcilably. You cannot make it better on your own. You will only spend your entire life trying to nuance and posture and merit yourself before a God who cannot forgive you because Jesus is not standing in your place. The condemnation only gets worse. That's heavy to think about. It's heavy to consider. But for the Christian, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, 1, that because of grace, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why do we feel condemned so often? It's because we forget that, don't we? The issue, if you think with me for a second, is we see ourselves not united to Christ. There's this story in Daniel chapter 3 about these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Megan and I thought about calling our kids that, but just was too hard to spell. There's a story in Daniel chapter 3. If you've, if you've been around the church long, you probably know that. I'll, I'll paint a little picture for you. There are these guys that found favor in King Nebuchadnezzar's side in Babylon. And, and uh, they were worshiping the one true God, Yahweh, all along. And then these guys came along, these Babylonians came along and manipulated King Nebuchadnezzar into saying that if these guys worship anyone other than you, and they don't bow down to the statue, then they should be thrown into the fiery furnace. And so they continue worshiping Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, um, and judgment is served because the king makes a, a kind of a verdict, a judgment call, that he agrees with those men who manipulated them. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they keep worshiping. And the king finds out, there's a whistleblower in this case, and the king finds out and he has to keep his word. If he's a powerful king, a, king, a man of his word, he has to keep it. And so 
He's grieved and he, he throws these men into the furnace. Actually, he's not. He turns it up seven times hotter. I'm thinking of Daniel in the lion's den. He's, he turns it up seven times hotter, so hot that the men that are putting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace actually die. And so what happens in the fire is these men go in with faith that God will rescue them. And in the fire, there's a fourth man that's protecting them. Theologians call this a Christophany or an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And so the fire is turned down and the men come out and no one's even singed. This fire is so hot that it killed these other men. It doesn't even touch these guys. Now, here's why I share that, that narrative with you. I think what happens in our hearts when, whenever we feel the condemnation of sin and we get caught on this excessive introspection is that we are imagining ourselves in the fire, in the judgment without Jesus there. So my question to you is when you get in those moments, what would it look like for you to imagine Jesus in the fire with you? Because the, the judgment is in, the verdict is in for the Christian, and it's that you are perfectly righteous in his sight. It is as if you have always and only been righteous. That there's never been a day that you haven't been righteous because of Jesus. It's how good he is. But your heart just convinces you, leads you to these self-condemning thoughts. The problem is we're so used to living in this sinful nature that we cast judgment in a partial story. And that's why John says, God is greater than your hearts because why? Because he knows everything. He knows the whole story. He knows what Jesus did. In those moments, you are forgetting who Jesus is. Our hearts catch judgment on us and others as if Jesus were not standing between us and our Father. Jesus were not standing between us and others who hurt us. And what happens is we're judging with a partial picture of what life really is in Christ. You know, Paul got it so well. And this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture because I deal with this so often. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul, Paul writes this. He says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and mysteries of the uh, stewards of the mysteries of God. He said, Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful with the gospel message. But with me, you see, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Now, when I first read this, I thought, okay, Paul's being arrogant here, okay? But, but what he's saying is so true. He's saying, listen, listen, why am I judging myself? Why would it be helpful to judge myself? Why would it be helpful to listen to the judgments of others against me? He says, in fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm also not acquitted. Like, I might be guilty of whatever they're saying about me. But ultimately, it is the Lord who judges me. And I am united to him. And so if he wants to bring conviction, not condemnation because I'm in him and there's none of that. If he wants to bring convic conviction into my heart to realign me, so be it. So he goes on to say this to the believer, and you need to hear this. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. He's saying that whenever we choose to pass on judgment and condemnation, to our own selves and our own hearts, we are living as if we are God. 
That whenever we choose to cast judgment and condemnation on those who sin against us, who hurt us, who live differently than us, that we are choosing to put ourselves on the throne and play the role of God. He said we must refuse to pass judgment on ourselves or anyone else until Jesus returns. Why? Because we don't have all the evidence. We do not have all the witnesses. And most of all, the judge isn't even in his chambers yet. You see the danger of that, of playing the role of the judge against yourself or against others? And I think this is exactly why Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 20, the part of the Great Commission that we always forget. Jesus says, hey, I've given you this grand mission to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching, baptizing, But he says, don't forget this. I'm with you always to the end of the age. What's the end of the age? It's when the judge gets in his chambers, right? He's with us until then. It's it's why in Matthew 13, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus tells this parable about how the kingdom of God will come about. He says the wheat and the tares will grow together until the judge comes. And then he'll separate the wheat from the tares. But so many of us, so much of our lives, try to play the role of the judge. And we inadvertently put ourselves in a role that we were never empowered, intended, or called to live in. Especially against ourselves. And that's why we don't live in the joy of Jesus. It's because our hearts are condemned because we're imagining ourselves in a future that does not include Christ and living out of that identity. We have this inner accuser that must be silenced and reminded about the blood of Jesus. Second thing is this. I want to talk about how our hearts condemn us and the way Jesus rescues us. Let me read the verse again for you. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. And reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart because he knows everything. Our hearts condemn us because they judge our condition without Jesus in the center. That's what's going on. And, you know, I think we can kind of see how our hearts condemn us. I'm just going to paint a little vignette here for you, what this might look like for you. I think on one one side of the ditch, there's the self-absorbed heart. The self-absorbed heart it is when we cannot stop thinking about ourselves. How will this make me sound among my peers and, and, uh, and, and friends? How will this make me sound on social media if I say this? How did she or he receive that text message that I just sent? They're sending me the dots right now. They're not giving me a response. Did, did I just make my boss mad? You know, my kids are really not going to like me if I make this decision. The self-absorbed heart is a heart that seems overly concerned with others. It seems like you're loving your neighbor as yourself because you're, because you're thinking about other people. But the, the toxicity of it is this, that in reality it is only concerned with self. It is absorbed with self. And it's subtle It's when we start thinking about our lives with self in the middle. We spend our time trying to Photoshop and posture ourselves into the person we think we want to be. It seems noble, but if we take a look at our heart from the balcony level, 
we'll see that the narcissism is the, the narcissistic nature of our flesh is the dominant force and the driving factor of our hearts, leading us, ushering us into self-condemnation. The self-absorbed heart. This is the posture that can be defined like this. It, it's not seeing sin, therefore not needing Christ. No Christ, no grace, no grace, no joy, no joy, no life. That's the self-absorbed heart. The, the other side of the ditch is this one, the self-repelled heart. The self-repelled uh, uh, heart is, uh, is different than the self-absorbed heart. This is the heart that only sees sin that can't imagine being redeemed. We hate ourselves. We hate what we've become. We punish and condemn ourselves. It's like this. We, we, we beat ourselves up and trap ourselves in a house with no windows. We don't let ourselves feel grace because we don't deserve it. This, although it's different, is yet another form of narcissism, putting self at the center. It's another way that the heart can condemn you. We think if I could just get my stuff together and stop acting so foolish and sinful, then I could let myself feel grace and let myself experience joy. And we foolishly believe that our circumstances and environment are the problem. The self-absorbed person thinks too highly of themselves, whereas the self-repelled person thinks too lowly of themselves. They cannot love their neighbor because they do not love themselves. Okay, so Ryan, where are you going with this? Well, the Christ-centered heart is what John is after for us. Sinking ourselves, tethering ourselves to the God who knows all things so that we can have the confidence that we need to walk faithfully in this world with assured hearts of the grace that Jesus has secured for us. John says that this reassurance of the gospel is intended for your confidence and somehow you need confidence to live faithfully before God in this world. If you hadn't, think, think about it like this. If you had nothing to hide and knew that Jesus knew you inside and out, he knew your motives, he knew your intentions, he knew your deep, dark sins, and that he still loved you and still called you and still wants to use you, and nothing could ever change that, how would you live this afternoon? What would your life be about? I'd be more bold, right? I'd repent a little more often because I've got nothing to lose. I've got nothing to gain. It's all already mine, right? If his forgiveness is abundant, why am I so stingy with it? Why am I so prideful not to think that I probably sinned against somebody? You see, only in Jesus can our view of self take the rightful place and thus no longer condemn us in Christ. Remember that the reason that our hearts condemn us is that either in pride or fear, we imagine ourselves not linked to Christ. And that's what the enemy wants to do. And this is a future that your Father in heaven never imagines for you. Yet it is a world that you live in constantly. So why do we so often imagine our future without being united to Christ forever? Why do we let ourselves go there? See, God has given us his spirit as a guarantee of his love that completes us. And we forget about that spirit and how that spirit works and what informs that spirit, the word. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 speaks of this. It says this, Paul writes, And it is God 
who establishes you, who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us, on the church, and his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's a seal, it's a guarantee that he has given to us that no amount of self-condemnation can drive us out of his presence for eternity. His spirit will convict and discipline us in love, just like a loving father will do, but it will not condemn us. What's the difference? Condemnation seeks to permanently present us as guilty and extinguish the hope of a future with our Father in heaven. That's what condemnation seeks to do. What does conviction do? Conviction reveals our sin, but it shows us a solution. Condemnation for the Christian is self-imposed. It's not from Jesus. Let me say that again. If you feel condemnation, it is not from Jesus Christ. The only time that condemnation will be from Jesus Christ is on the last day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. If you are not found in Christ then, condemnation will be from Jesus because he'll be the judge then. But until then, every knee that bows to Jesus, condemnation is not part of your story. Conviction is, but not condemnation. Conviction is from the Spirit. So how would your confidence in redemption change if you, in your heart, saw the Lord as desiring eagerly to forgive you instead of condemn you? Isaiah 43 changed everything for me in this, in this respect here. I'm going to read it to you. Verses 25 and 26. Isaiah says this, I... I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. So the Lord blots out transgressions for his sake. It's what he wants to do. It is his desire is out of his love. And I will not remember your sins, he says. He goes on to tell Isaiah, put me in remembrance. I love this part right here. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. He says, go to the mat with me. Remind me of who you are when you're gripped by my love because I'm so eager to prove your innocence. I'm so eager to show your alibi. I'm so pleased to proclaim your guiltlessness. I'm so eager to show you grace. I'm so eager to extend joy and to show you love. Church, this is God's plan for the church, for the accuser that lives within you. So how would you live if you had nothing to lose or nothing to gain because Jesus was all. Let's pray together. Our Father, we... Lord, I'm just in awe of your presence today. Of the mystery of the glory of God, which is Christ in your church. The hope of glory the God of the universe living inside these broken vessels. What a mystery.
Lord, my prayer for this church, for anybody who's watching this today, listening to this today, would be that the days that we live in condemnation cease. The days that we grapple with you for joy and grace would increase because you are so eager to forgive, to extend joy, and to crown us with grace as your children. God, increase those days for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.